0: I'm Russell, and this is Social Skills Coaching, brought to you by Newton Media Group and Patrick King. Stick around to become more likable, more charismatic, and more productive. Today is September 12, 2023. Here's your schedule for today, based on today's holidays, celebrations, and memorials. To start with, schedule some time to observe National Video Games Day. After that, you want to find and honor your favorite policewoman. And while you have her ear, you can also report any Medicare fraud you're aware of. That's going to be a full day. On the lunch menu today, we have the standard ants on a log with a chocolate milkshake on the side. Thanks again, NationalToday.com, for keeping us busy. In today's episode from Patrick King's book, The Power of EQ... We go further into the question of empathy and explore exactly how we can become more compassionate, understanding people. Thanks for listening. Let's begin by asking what is empathy anyway? One dictionary definition says that empathy is the ability to share someone else's feelings or experiences by imagining what it would be like to be in that person's situation. A key word there is imagining. The big idea is that if you can look at something from someone else's point of view, then you can conceive of how they must feel and what they might be thinking. This cannot be done, however, if we don't possess the imagination needed to think outside of our own perceptual limitations and look into someone else's world. The idea of perceptual positions comes from NLP, or neuro-linguistic programming. It's a framework that not only helps us improve our communication, it can also give us the tools to navigate conflict and work through difficult situations so that you come out on top. In this model, it's possible for a person to look at any interaction through three different lenses, called first, second, and third perceptual positions. First position is your own viewpoint the most natural and obvious position to inhabit. This is the place where you're in touch with and aware of your own thoughts and feelings. However, it can be a limited position, especially if you are unable to ever leave it. Second position is the other person's viewpoint. That is, walking in their shoes. In this position, you're not trying to look at another person's world as you would see it, but as they would see it. You try to put yourself into their perception to better understand their thoughts and feelings from the inside, rather than from first position. This is not quite the same as mind-reading or being a so-called empath, but it is expanding your field of awareness and perception to include the possibility of a different perspective from your own. Third position is the neutral, detached observer's viewpoint. When you occupy this position, you're seeing both yourself and the other person from a third perspective. You can think of this as a bystander or an uninvolved journalist type who's seeing the facts as they are, without any personal investment either way. This broader view also lets you see the interaction as a whole and perhaps part of a bigger system and not merely one person's view versus the other's. In looking at this zoomed-out perspective, you may see cause and effect relationships that are otherwise hidden. So what's the point of knowing about these three different perceptual positions? From the NLP point of view, this framework is about obtaining additional information. Getting to see different aspects on a difficult situation can bring you closer to resolving it or finding creative solutions. By understanding that perception is not reality and that other people are inhabiting perceptions that are completely different from yours, you get a 360-degree view on a situation that you might have missed if you insisted on clinging to your own narrower version of events. If you or someone else is consistently trapped in their own first position and all the stories and associations that go with it, It's a recipe for the same dynamics to play out again and again. That said, you'd be mistaken for thinking that the third position is the better one, and the first the worst. Each of the positions has their advantages and disadvantages. Stay in first position too long, and you risk becoming narcissistic, self-absorbed, stuck on your victimhood, focused on narrow issues and ways of looking at problems, stubborn or unable to find creative solutions stay in second position too long and you risk becoming a martyr or doormat always thinking of others while sacrificing your own self-knowledge of boundaries stay in third position too long and you risk becoming detached unemotional cold and overly rational as though you were inhabiting god's perspective and looking down without much empathy. The real wisdom comes in your ability to skillfully shift between all three. A real-world example can help us see how perceptual position switching can improve communication and even resolve conflict. Imagine that there's someone at work that you're developing quite a difficult relationship with. His name is Mike. And although he gets on well with others, you're finding yourself at odds with him more and more. Mike is older than you by two decades, but he is also your subordinate. He's been working for the company for more than seven years, whereas you were hired last quarter. The problem, as far as you can see it, is that Mike is extremely resistant to taking on board any feedback you give him. Not only does he seem to ignore what you say, but he actually pushes back against it, causing some embarrassment for you, and once or twice, holding up team projects. Things came to a head when he insinuated that, although you were qualified, you were not actually experienced, and that he felt unable to follow your leadership. The matter has been referred to HR, where you are dismayed to discover that Mike considers you something of a bully. What on earth has gone wrong? Let's try to move through all perceptual positions to get a broader view on the situation and seek out any information we might have missed by too firmly occupying our own first position. You take out three sheets of paper, one for each position. On the first, you fully outline your first position and try to carefully unpack your thoughts, feelings, and interpretations of the problem. You realize you're feeling attacked and undermined and you're confused and hurt that Mike hasn't spoken personally to you but gone to HR. If you're honest, you're also frustrated by his stubbornness and quietly wondering whether his age has made him inflexible. Once you've fully understood your own position, but don't underestimate this step. Sometimes we aren't in fact clear on what we think or feel and need to slow down and clarify it for ourselves then move to second position. What does Mike think and feel from his point of view? Mike has worked for the company for a long time and has done well and is well-liked. Then a new manager whom he doesn't like comes in and he probably feels a little threatened. Don't just make this an intellectual exercise. Use all your five senses to try to imagine what it would be like to be Mike. Can you see, feel, hear, taste what he does? Try to look at yourself through his eyes. What do you see? Maybe when you do this, you realize you probably do come across as quite arrogant and unwilling to acknowledge his age and experience. For the third sheet of paper, you zoom out even further and try to see both of you at work in this situation. Something shifts into place, and you can suddenly see it more clearly. Mike is insulted to be managed by someone so young, and you are desperate to prove to Mike that you know your stuff and won't be underestimated. You can suddenly see why this combination has been so explosive. You've been attempting to prove yourself by being firm and confident, but this is only perceived by Mike as haughty, unearned arrogance. You've both been caught in a power struggle and a reinforcing loop. It's only in coming far out of either Mike's position or yours that you can see the bigger picture. To finish, you might come back to your own position again and ask how your own feelings and thoughts have changed. What have you learned that you didn't know before? What can you find more empathy and understanding for? Where exactly is the source of misunderstanding or lack of harmony? What new solutions or ways forward does this understanding suggest? What information do you still need to understand? What false assumptions, biases, and blind spots are you able to let go of? How might you like to change the way you communicate with this person moving forward? After completing this exercise, you realize that the more you double down and insist that Mike obey you, the more resistant he is likely to be. Mike's not a difficult person per se. He's just coming at things from a very different perspective. Once you understand that perspective, you're better able to talk with him so that he will hear. If you ask yourself, how would I feel if I were Mike right now? What would I want? Then you're able to see that Mike might be feeling unappreciated or even disrespected. Hence the bully accusation. You would do better to consciously acknowledge his experience and expertise and try out letting him self-direct more than you would younger employees. Hey, Mike, you were here five years ago when they did the merger, right? Maybe you could compile a quick page summary to get the rest of us in the loop. You probably know what needs to be included, so I'll leave the details to you. Perspective Taking How to Be Mentally Flexible This capacity to really see into other people's worlds is not a superpower, and it's not as straightforward as being kind or polite. Really, it takes an act of social imagination to temporarily set aside your own frame of reference and entertain another, possibly very different one. Before empath comes an act of what psychologists call Theory of mind, the ability to not only understand what others think differently from you, but to observe their behavior, ascribe emotions and thoughts to them, and even imagine what it would actually feel like to inhabit that mental state. People with strong emotional intelligence are typically perceptive, and they have a heightened awareness of a stream of data that others may ignore. Further, they are aware of themselves in relation to others. So the emotional intelligence behind perspective taking is really two forms of consciousness at once, self-awareness combined with awareness of the other. Often, people who teach about emotional awareness are doing so from an empathy point of view, i.e., if you can understand someone else, you will automatically be kinder to them. But perspective-taking goes much further than this. Expanding your social awareness means you are mentally flexible, more intentional and focused in the way you communicate, and more able to see solutions. Empathy is just a very nice side effect. Exercises to flex your perspective-taking muscles. In the previous section, we use shifting perceptual positions to give us a 360-degree view on a tricky work relationship. But you don't have to wait for a communication to break down to start learning these skills. Here are a few techniques to fine-tune your ability to consciously switch perspectives. And yes, it's not something that comes for free. We have to practice. If you don't practice you'll fall back into the default setting, and guess what that is? Conversational Narcissism. The Step Inside Exercise For this, you'll need some sort of stimulus or object. A good place to start is a photo, a piece of art, or movie, still, that contains a scene with ideally two or more people in it. Ordinarily, we look at others and, more or less see them as objects, as not me, and tend to dismiss their inner realities and focus, if anything, on their outward behavior. This exercise forces your brain to work a little harder and see into someone else's experience rather than just linger on the superficial surface. As you look at this picture, ask yourself, what can the person in the picture perceive? Think about all five senses. What might this person know? What are their beliefs, attitudes, or past experiences? What could this person care about? What do you imagine they want? What are they trying to do, not just in the picture, but in life in general? For example, let's say you find an interesting photo in a magazine. There are two women sitting outside a shop. There's a small dog. And there's a man entering the shop with a curious expression on his face. Just stop and really look at this picture. Then pick one person in the image, for example, one of the women, and ask the above questions. It's a good idea to start with the basics. Think about the literal world this person inhabits. What can they see, smell, hear? Then move on to their inner experience of thoughts and feelings. You might find it helps you really step inside to use first person. For example, I'm relaxing with my friend and wondering who the man walking into the shop is. Try this exercise with portraits, movies, or TV shows, or even when people watching in a public place. Now, there are a few big caveats with this exercise. Imagine you're 16 years old and looking at an image of a 30-year-old. You imagine that they think, oh, no. I'm absolutely ancient and decrepit. I'm a very boring and uptight person. I wonder which young people I'm going to criticize next. You can see the problem, right? The skill you're developing is to look at people from within those people themselves, not look at them from outside, from your point of view. If you fail to do this, you risk merely amplifying and entrenching stubborn prejudices and narrowing your perspective, and not expanding it. The step-in, step-out, step-back exercise. Of course, if you were 100% successful in inhabiting someone else's point of view, you'd still be severely limited in your perspective, since you'd only be adopting their limits and blind spots. The following exercise helps you practice the flexibility needed to switch perspectives in the same way you switch lenses on a microscope. Begin in the same way as the previous exercise and dig deep into another person's point of view. That's the step-in part. Next, step out again by returning to your own perspective and asking, what would you like to better understand about this person's perspective? What questions do you have? Finally, the step-back part is taking some further distance from both your own perspective and theirs. This entails looking at yourself, looking at them, essentially. What do you notice about how your perspective is influencing the way you see their perspective? What changes when you zoom right out? For example, let's say you're the 16-year-old who steps in, but then also steps out and steps back. You ask things like, Is there something about being a 16-year-old that might be affecting the way I'm able to think about being 30 years old? What would it be like to be a 16-year-old thinking about someone older than me? What would the 30-year-old say about my interpretation of their experience? You might notice that what you thought was stepping in really wasn't, since you were only answering the questions much as you would from your own perspective. Seeing this, you may decide to step in once more and try again. The Context Exercise So far we've been talking about perspective as though it were something rather small that belonged privately to single individuals, a bit like a personality. Of course, each and every one of us is also heavily influenced by our background, our politics and belief systems, and the social and cultural contexts we live in. Meaning is never something the individual creates on their own. They always do it in conjunction with the shared mores, assumptions, and symbols that make up their world. So, if we wish to really see into people's perceptions, we have to take this additional data into account. A fantastic way to do this is to consider historical perspectives— or the points of view of people who come from completely different classes, ethnicities, nationalities, religions, time periods, and social groups. If you're a man, for example, can you think of what it would be like to be a woman? This is trickier than it first seems. It's easy to flesh out an idea of femaleness from a male perspective. But what might it be like to be a woman from a woman's perspective? and vice versa. What does the world look like to someone who has completely different modes of making meaning? Can you inhabit a completely different worldview and see what that feels like? Historians can be a great help when it comes to developing this kind of empathy. By reading the life stories of people who lived in very different worlds, we can start to appreciate that someone might construct their life narrative in a completely different way from us ask yourself what do they think and why what does a certain experience mean to them in their own words regardless of how you see a situation how does their worldview inform how they make sense of it how might all of this be different for the way you're making sense of things This last point is especially useful because many of us make an error in assuming that other people have worldviews, whereas we are just living in the world as it is. We imagine that they have beliefs and perspectives, but we are somehow just neutral. A great question to ask is, how does this other person see me? How would they explain my behavior or characterize my worldview? All of the above three exercises can be used for situations that you are actively taking part in, as well as scenarios you are viewing from the outside, or hypothetical situations. They can be applied to someone you're trying to communicate with, but you can also use them to help you better understand the dynamics between two other people. By becoming curious about how each person sees and interprets the other how their respective viewpoints influence their focus, and how each might feel, you may find that you garner insight into group dynamics that seem almost like magic. Once you become adept at being aware of yourself, aware of others, and aware of all the many different angles one can view a situation with, you will never take for granted that there is such a thing as a default position or an objective opinion. You will instead see patterns of mutual interaction, and if you are aware of these patterns, you can step in and work with them, rather than unconsciously being at their mercy. The road to hell is, as they say, paved with good intentions. Consider the following example. A famous American psychologist is a renowned expert in the field of post-traumatic stress, and has written countless scholarly articles and books. When a devastating tsunami hits an Asian country on the other side of the world, his university department joins up with some local charities, puts together a working group, and sends him and the team over to the Asian country to offer relief and aid. Having endured such incredible hardship and stress, the people must, so the reasoning goes, be suffering from extreme PTSD, and will be in dire need of professional mental health treatment. When they get there, they're quick to set up free one-on-one counseling sessions for people to talk about what they've experienced. The lead psychologist has trained several of his students to offer mindfulness, journaling, art therapy, and person-centered psychotherapy techniques in a bid to support the tsunami victims. Except, it doesn't work? The people sit in the counseling sessions, stumped and unsure what the point is. The psychology students find these people are presenting with very few, if any, of the symptoms of PTSD in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and seem resistant to whatever help is being offered. Having read through the preceding chapter, however, you can probably guess why. Though well-intentioned, Such a program was doomed to fail from the start, because it completely failed to consider the perspective of the people it purported to help. A quick cultural analysis might have shown that the preference for talk therapy is a distinctly Western preoccupation. The concept of mindfulness, at least as it's reflected through the 20th century American academic lens, seems alien to a culture with very different ideas about what human beings are, how they work, and how they overcome problems. The counseling team worked hard to answer the question, how could we help? But hidden in this was the assumption that help means the same thing to everyone. They might have asked instead, what would these people consider to be help? How do they view what has happened to them, or even how might these people view me and my team coming in and offering talk therapy? This is why perspective-taking is about so much more than empathy, sympathy, or kindness. Good intentions and wanting to help are simply not enough. Handling Big Egos, Including Your Own Before we conclude this chapter, let's take a good look at arguably one of the biggest obstacles to genuine empathy and emotional intelligence, ego. One of the main reasons we're often unable to appreciate another person's point of view is that we are simply too attached to our own. So attached, in fact, that we can almost forget that we share this world with others who are as devoted to their experience as we are to ours. For obvious reasons, most of us want to be right, and we want others to approve of us and like us. We want to feel special and important. We like imagining that we are somehow at the center of things. We don't want others to see our vulnerable or flawed side, or we would prefer to believe that we don't possess these characteristics in the first place. But deliberately pushing against this all-to-human tendency is essential if we are to become more emotionally intelligent and improve the way we communicate and engage with others. The trick is to step outside of one's own ego and look objectively at the defenses, biases, blind spots, assumptions, and prejudices that it introduces. This is, by its nature, an uncomfortable thing to do, which is why so few people do it. To get used to the idea, let's begin with the easier task, recognizing and working around other people's egos. Managing Egotistical People First things first, egotist and egoist actually denote different things. The former refers to someone who is entirely self-interested, whereas the latter usually refers to someone who holds the view that one's own self-interest is the driving force behind all human conduct. Both terms have ego, the Latin word for I, as their origin, and both will probably prove quite difficult to deal with in everyday conversation. Are such people narcissists? Not quite. Clinical psychologist and author of don't you know who I am? How to stay sane in an age of narcissism, entitlement, and incivility? Ramani S. Dervasula says that while narcissists definitely are egotistical, not all egotistical people are narcissists. A narcissist is selfish, but they also want affirmation and adoration, are highly sensitive to feedback or criticism, and lack the capability for reciprocal relationships, as well as the ability to self-reflect. The sad truth is that being a little self-absorbed is a rather common human characteristic. Here are some signs you are dealing with someone who is trapped in their bubbles and how to work with them. Sign 1. A Tendency to be Constantly Self-Referential Remember the shift response? For an egotist, this act is viewed as a kind of correction. They see that something in the world is not about them, so they kindly step in to adjust it so it is. For an egotist, things are only important when they relate somehow to them. Egotists love to use the word I and will have countless creative ways of constantly turning everything back to themselves. They may have an annoying habit of sharing personal stories or opinions in situations where they are not warranted or appropriate. The hidden assumption throughout is that the purpose of the conversation is for them to showcase their unique ego, to garner attention and praise, to control and steer the conversation, or even to dominate. What to do about it? Well, running away screaming is usually not an option, but interestingly, Dr. Duvasula suggests going along with it and abandoning the hope of changing course again. Why? Because you can't force an egotist to be less egotistical, and if you attempt to do so, you risk getting drawn into a battle of the egos. Sign 2. Lack of Interest for Things That Don't Directly Serve Their Interests if something cannot be made to relate to the egotist in some way, expect for it to be met with lukewarm faux interest at best, or, more typically, a complete withdrawal of attention. In a conversation in which the egotist knows little about the topic or cannot volunteer anything from their own life, they may take a back seat, get bored, or be non-committal. As unpleasant as it is to think about An egotist only really wants to engage with things that benefit them. They may fail entirely to see the point of things that benefit others. What to do about it? As annoying as it is, Dervisula again suggests not trying to force it. There's no point appealing to an egotist's sense of higher good, or pretending that what you're talking about does in fact relate to them. Rather, Find ways to ensure that you're never fully depending on their commitment. Sign three, an exaggerated view of their own abilities. This is the kind of person who will be tempted to one up you in conversation. On the one hand, such a person can be very blatant in blowing their own trumpet, but on the other, it can be incredibly subtle. For example, you might notice that someone tends to rewrite history and conveniently remember things in a way that paints them in a decidedly flattering light. If confronted with something negative, you may notice a strange preference for twisting things so that they make the egotist look good, even if it's something they've done wrong. Be on the watch for covert one-upmanship, however. This may manifest As someone playing the martyr or doormat, nobody is as humble as me, or centering themselves by repeatedly bringing the focus to their victim status. What to do about it? An important thing not to do is get defensive. You cannot stop an egotist from viewing themselves in any distorted way they want to, but that doesn't mean you have to buy into it be crystal clear in your own mind what your recollection of events is and don't be bullied out of it take everything else with a grain of salt sign 4 no personal accountability while an egotist will be forever keen to bring the conversation around to themselves there's one exception when the conversation is about who is to blame In that case, it's never their fault, and they will never take ownership of any actions that have had bad consequences. What to do about it? Reduce your expectations. Be careful not to expose yourself by depending or relying on an egotist, and don't take promises too seriously. As much as possible, put distance between yourself and an egotist's actions. Sign 5. Lack of Empathy It's not that egotists can't understand that other people are in pain. Rather, they may struggle to see why they specifically should care. This makes them pretty bad at offering support. Or it may mean that they use the opportunity to boost their own egos by taking on an esteemed advice-giving role or playing at being a rescuer. What to do about it? It's pretty obvious. Do not go to an egotist for help, as they will be unable to listen and empathize. Seek out others who can genuinely offer you that support. Reading through Dervasula's advice, you might be wondering if there really isn't anything else you can do to protect yourself against an egotist. Sadly, No. Egotists do not suddenly change their behavior when its consequences are brought to their attention. In fact, they may simply double down. Instead, your best approach is to minimize contact as far as possible, maintain a strong sense of self, and make sure that you do have some people in your support network to turn to when necessary. When dealing with other people's narcissism, set boundaries and calmly and neutrally enforce them. Don't get caught up in trying to make witty retorts or back them into a corner. This is just your own ego talking. Avoid them or change the topic. Keep your distance. Be pragmatic and shrewd, and whatever you do, don't bother getting embroiled in complicated theories about why they are the way they are. It's none of your business. Remind yourself of your priorities, stick to the facts, and have the grace to be guided by your own values without needing other people to do the same. This attitude will help you bolster yourself against the feeling of inferiority that self-absorbed people can instill. However, now that we've seen what egotism looks like from this side, let's consider it from the other side. If you are the one displaying these behaviors, you actually give the other person very little option but to avoid you, minimize engagement, lower their expectations, and politely dodge you in the future. This tells us something important. If you are being a narcissist in conversations, people will seldom tell you. They'll simply disappear or pull back. All the more reason to be proactive and make sure that you're not making a habit of these bad behaviors. How not to be an egotist yourself. Tip 1. Don't think you're immune one of the best things you can do to eradicate selfish and self-absorbed behavior in your life is to be honest about the potential for it to exist. If you think, nope, not me, then chances are you have a blind spot. We all have the capacity to be a little narcissistic. Tip two, don't get trapped in a bubble. These days, It's easier than ever to curate your own reality bubble where you only ever interact with material that you agree with and people who are exactly like you. This in itself is a form of narcissism. We forget that other worldviews, other people, and other interests exist. And what's more, we get out of practice with learning to engage with this difference when we encounter it. Have you ever heard the idea that you are an average of the five people you spend the most time with? Well, if you have very few people in your world, or the people you do have are all the same, then what invariably happens is you create a void, and self-absorption can start to fill that void and make you a limited, one-dimensional person. This is why it's important to expose yourself to different people, ideas, perspectives, etc., Constantly remind yourself that you are occupying just a small, small corner of the universe. Tip three, work on your own self-esteem. It may seem counterintuitive, but the calmer and more secure you are in your own value as a human being, the less you will feel like you have to prove and the more you can relax and let others shine. Often, Conversational narcissism stems from a kind of anxiety that we're not good enough, not seen or heard, not valued. Our dominating the dialogue comes from a sense that we need to fight for attention, to prove ourselves worthier than others, or to constantly convince others to like us. However, if you can just relax in yourself, you'll find that you are less inclined to always try so hard and will start to notice interesting things in the conversation other than yourself. A bonus, you may actually come across as more likable, more poised and self-possessed, even a little mysterious if you're not seeing conversations as a competition or battleground. Tip 4. Focus on airtime, not content. Who's speaking the most? Sometimes we can mistakenly think that we are being humble, accommodating, and empathetic because we're talking about someone else, giving advice, or saying objectively true or helpful things. But as a conversation unfolds, try to forget the content of what each person is saying and just look at how much time each speaker is taking for themselves. For example, if you're spending 10 minutes talking at length about how amazing someone else is, you're still talking. It's still about you. Pay attention and instead make sure that every person present is contributing equally. Tip 5. Pay attention to the word I. Have you ever noticed how ready people are to share their opinion, even on things that only a second ago they weren't even aware existed? Conversational narcissism is about constantly making yourself the reference point against which everything is measured. So someone mentions a current event and they say, well, I think it's a small habit, but done often enough, it gives the impression of a person who cannot process the world except through their own narrow filter of interpretation. It can stunt communication and, frankly, become boring, or worse, invite petty arguments when someone feels equally inclined to tell you what they think in comparison. Try to notice how often you're saying things like, I feel and I think in a conversation. Can you focus instead on the topic itself, an objective external event, or what others are saying? Can you ask a question rather than make a statement? Of course, it's impossible to avoid stating your opinion eventually, but try to avoid responding to every conversational prompt as an invitation to say whether you agree or not, or state how the topic relates to you specifically. One thing to avoid? Starting sentences with, as a, for example, as a father myself, I think... If you can suspend your ego, genuinely listen, and become curious about something, anything outside of your own limited perception, you will avoid becoming a conversational narcissist. Summary Empathy is the ability to share someone else's feelings or experiences by imagining what it would be like to be in that person's situation and being able to occupy their perceptual position or perspective. In NLP's perceptual positions exercise, first position is your own point of view, second position is another person's, and third position concerns the view of you both from a third neutral observer perspective. By switching between these positions, you gain more insight, understanding, and empathy, and find solutions to problems. No position is best, but wisdom comes from being able to skillfully shift between all three. Perspective taking is an act of social imagination where you temporarily set aside your own frame of reference and entertain another, possibly very different one. Self-awareness and awareness of others means we can develop theory of mind and a certain mental flexibility. Build this capacity by looking at pictures of people and trying the step-inside activity, the step-in, step-out, and step-back activity, or the context exercise. These will help you strengthen your ability to consider the world through other people's eyes. One of the biggest obstacles to genuine empathy and emotional intelligence is ego, our own and others'. When dealing with people who are constantly self-referential, uninterested in things that don't benefit them, lacking in personal accountability and empathy, and have a heightened opinion of themselves, try to avoid getting into a battle of the egos. Lower expectations, stay firm in your boundaries, and maintain distance. Watch for narcissism in yourself, too. Don't assume you're immune to self-absorption, work on your self-esteem, and consciously mix with those who don't always confirm your worldview. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Social Skills Coaching. Remember that you can join our author's email list at bit.ly slash pkconsulting for more tips and tricks on how to become more likable, more charismatic, and more productive. In the birthday parade for today, which apparently is a very musical day, we have Hans Zimmer, Jennifer Hudson, and Barry White. Also on this day in 2003, Johnny Cash died. From the history book today, over 400 years ago, Henry Hudson began exploration of what is now known as the Hudson River. And finally for today, iconic track and field athlete Jesse Owens was born in 1913. Believe we'll you with this quote from that great athlete. The battles that count aren't the ones for gold medals. The struggles within yourself, that's where it's at.